You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. I wonder if you caught the story last April of Sarah Tikolsky, a softball player from Western Oregon University, playing an away game at Central Washington University. And Sarah is at bat. There are two runners on base. She's got one strike against her, and if she's like me, she knows what comes next. It always happens. Another strike, another strike, another out, and the inning is over, and I've stranded two runners. But at that moment, Sarah did what she had never done in her life before. She put it over the fence. She swung at that ball and hit a home run. Shocked, she runs to first base. Running to first base. It's a home run, but she's running to first base. Turns the corner towards second and realizes, I missed the bag. So she turns around and as she does, she slices the ligament in her knee and drops right to the ground. Face in the sand. And Sarah hears her voice crying through the, her coach's voice crying through the pain she hears ringing in her ears saying, get back to the bag. Get back to the bag. But she cannot move, though she's only five feet away. So here's a case where those of you who know the real rules of baseball uh, start thinking, what are the implications of a situation like this? The ball is out of the park. You've got a gal who has not touched first base and apparently cannot touch any of the other bases. Two runners on base. And as they make their way home, everybody starts arguing. What happens? Well, if Sarah's teammates come and try to give her any assistance at all, it's an out, they think. There's even a woman with a wheelchair in the stands who said, take my wheelchair, take my wheelchair. (laughs) Apparently that's not allowed. In the midst of it all, Mallory Holtman, the first baseman, woman who stands next to this woman in pain, walks over to the opposing coach and says, what if I carry her? She grabs another friend, and they come over, and they realize, you know what? There are a few options here. They could put a a pinch runner in, but then she'd stay on first base, and the two runs wouldn't count. Or uh, uh, they could just forfeit forfeit that play. But but this Mallory comes over, and they they gently pick up Sarah, and they carry her back to first base. They ask her which leg is the hurt one and touch the bag with the other leg. And then they go to second base, carrying her. This is the other team. The fans in the crowds are stunned. You can't do that. You can't help our opponent win this game. They carry her to third base, and they bring her home. Lame and in pain, she touches home base, having been helped by her opponent. And out of that, Western Oregon University would win the game. Four to two, because of the help of their opponents, these two. That, my friends, is friendship beyond the rules. Friendship beyond the rules. These two women didn't have to do that. There's no obligation to do that. What inspired? Who knows? The book that we're reading in the next two weeks, the book of Ruth, is a book about friendship beyond the rules. 
And if you take this piece of scripture seriously, it has great implications for the course of human history. Because it's not just the lives of those people who engage in friendship beyond the rules who are changed, but as we see the narrator continue the story towards its fulfillment, we understand the history of the world is changed through friendship beyond the rules. So listen uh, to this story. Um, it's a story about two women and a man, really. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. It's a story we are told that's set in the time of Judges. We really don't know who wrote it or when it was written. It had to have been written after uh, 1000 BC, which is the time of King David. But it's written about a time before that. Two, three hundred years before David. The time of the Judges. This is when God had taken his people out of Egypt through the Exodus to Mount Sinai, given them the law, sent them into the land, the conquest under Joshua, and now the time of Judges. The people have no a king. It's kind of tribal warlords sitting in the land of promise, waiting for the fulfillment. And in that context, the writer of Judges, especially in chapter 2, gives us note. They're looking for help. The people are looking for help. But they're misguided as to where to get it. Oh, they keep going to the left or the right. And the Lord is saying, come on, come on, come on. I am the one who carried you on eagle's wings out of oppression in Egypt. I am the deliverer. Come to me. And they look to the left and the right. This is a dark season in the life of God's people. There's a devolution in the book of Judges. It's a long book. Warlord after warlord. By the end, this kind of spiritual crisis of turning away from God has come to a climax. And the, the, the effects of it are there's a social a crisis. At the beginning of the book, the people of Israel are, are understanding they're supposed to fight God's enemies. By the end of the book of Judges, they're fighting each other. They're literally ripping brother apart from brother. And it has dire economic consequences. I mean, can you, can you think of a time uh, more similar to our own day with spiritual crisis, with social crisis, with economic crisis? And yet in the middle of that setting, there is, the writer of Ruth tells us, a story of redemption, an easy story to miss. There's no prophet, there are no miracles, no religious leaders, just friends. Let's look at this story together. Would you open your Bible to Ruth chapter 1? It's right after Judges. It actually floats around uh, the canon in the Hebrew tradition, but uh, we have it in our tradition because of the uh, Septuagint and the Vulgate. Uh, it makes sense to put it here because it's set in the time of, of Judges and gives us some relief. We find it other places um, associated with the Psalms because it's the birth narrative of David, the great psalmist. But here, uh, Ruth chapter 1, let's read uh, verses 15 through 18, and I would invite you to stand. You'll find on page 210, by the way. That's the way. I, that's always a way to find a short book in the Bible, it's a page number. Let's stand and read together Ruth chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. And after you're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's word. So she said, 
See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. How exactly does friendship beyond the rules change history? Well, I want to look with you at at, uh, three things. First, the need for spiritual friendship. Second, the nature of what I'll call spiritual friendship. Actually, I just did. And third, the power of spiritual friendship. So first, the need. We see the need in the story of Ruth. First few verses. Let Let me just read them to you. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab. He and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Chilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. With a need for spiritual friendship in Naomi's life. Here's a woman, she's married to a man named Elimelech, and the first crisis is famine. God had promised, if you turn to me for help, I will give you all the food that you need. It's part of the covenant in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I will provide for you. But when you turn away from me and find help from other gods, seek help from other gods, you'll go hungry. And so in the cycles of of apostasy and renewal, we catch the cycle, we catch this family in the midst of famine. And Elimelech, rather than uh, joining with uh, a renewal of faith in Israel and attempting to turn back to the Lord, takes his family somewhere else. He goes, well, we'll just go to Moab. Moab is across the Dead Sea, just on the other side. It does have a microclimate. So if you don't get what God uh, promises you where you are, then you just take your business elsewhere. And they go to Moab. The first crisis is famine and emigration. They get to Moab and they're in this foreign country, which is, by the way, uh, the enemy of Israel. They had fought against, been occupied by Moab. While they're there, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, passes away. That's the next crisis. She's widowed. Her husband is gone. And in in Israel, and in Moab, and in any patriarchal society, your property rights 
All of your rights are associated with uh, 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 the men in your life. So she's beginning to be destitute. At least she has two sons. But the next crisis, her sons marry Moabites. Oh my gosh. These Jewish boys have gone and they've married cross ethnically. They've married the enemies of God's people. We've been here too long. Next crisis, just hinted at here, in the 10 years. He said they've been here 10 years and no children. Just notice that. It doesn't tell you, but that's the implication of this. 10 years is kind of a period of barrenness. Sarah, after 10 years, gives Hagar to Abraham, her handmaid, so that he can have a child. After 10 years, no children for either of these sons, and most importantly for our story, for Naomi. Next crisis, two sons die. And now Naomi is just left with these two pagans. What to do? It's the need for spiritual friendship, the need for anything. And we see in verse 6, the story continues, Naomi started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab. Return, Hebrew is shuv, to turn. It's the same word for repentance, to come back, to come back to Bethlehem, the people of God, and to God himself. She begins this return. And what will her spirit be as she returns? Will it be, well, you know, you win some and you lose some, or God is good all the time? doesn't seem so. She comes into Bethlehem, and all the women of Bethlehem rejoice to see her. Could this be Naomi gone so long? She returns. Naomi! And what does Naomi say? Look down at verse 20. Call me no longer Naomi. The footnote tells us it means pleasant. Call me Mara. Bitter, it means. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant, Naomi, when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, how do you respond to crisis in your life? In two different ways. You, you can hear the words of Naomi and you can say, Oh, Naomi, sh 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 sh. that's very disrespectful language of God. Listen to what she says. She says, I am bitter. She's stinking angry. And who's done it to her? The Lord. The Lord's done it. Now, we get very uncomfortable. She uses powerful language. The Lord has dealt harshly with me. The Almighty, we don't really know what that word means. In Hebrew, it's El Shaddai. But it's related to a word for destruction, destroyer. Usually, God has destroyed the enemies of his people. But here she turns this uh, sense against herself. He has destroyed me. Now, traditional religiosity would say, oh, no, 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 we never talk about God that way. It's just, you know, it, you're just going to make him angrier, right? Please, please, he, you know, that's not safe, right? Or, on the other hand, there's the kind of materialistic, apathetic approach today. It's, well, you know, we say, well, I don't need that. If that's the way God is, I am walking, right? So the, the, the religious approach says... I've got to protect God. I know there's a problem here, but it can't be God. So I've got to, it must be somebody else's problem. It's like we're living in a crime scene and we put our eyes over, our hand over God's eyes and turn him away so he doesn't see the, you know, the, the gross devastation of the moment. This is like people in Jesus' days say, hey, Jesus, who was sin so that this man was born blind? 
was it here his mother? See, we don't want to consider that God has done anything that led to this in his life. It must have been someone else's fault. So we're always trying to get God off the hook because, you know, we want him to be nice to us. We're afraid that he might get angry. It's like Job's counselors are saying, Job, would you lower your voice? God's going to hear you. And Job goes, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything to deserve this thing. You must have missed a quiet time. You know, there must be an unpaid parking ticket somewhere in your past. Right? And God is bringing it back upon your head. God wouldn't do this. The other approach says, hey man, I am so sick of this God thing. You know, it's good while he's given food, but when he starts talking about being the bread of life, I'm out of here. I'm going somewhere else. Like a, a bad dating relationship that I've just taken too much abuse and I'm gone. Those are the two alternatives. But not Naomi. In the midst of her spiritual crisis, in the midst of her need, in the midst of her economic crisis, material crisis, she knows that the one with whom she must do her work is with none other than God. So she is honest about who she is. And she does not turn from God. She goes towards him. She's at this liminal experience in her life. She's forgotten even who she is, wants to change her name. She's like the, paragol, the, 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 the prodigal son who's in the distant country now, eating, Jewish boy eating out of a pig slough, who suddenly comes to his senses and returns. Returns hoping, suspecting that there is for him some kindness when he gets home. So the need for spiritual friendship in this story tells us that really we have a need for God in the midst of that. Naomi has a suspicion that God has help for her in her crisis. Let's talk about the nature of spiritual friendship. Because after all, the story moves about the relationships on the human plane. It's the way Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz relate to one another uh, that really seems to move the drama of the narrative. And, and the theme for the book is this Hebrew word hesed. Hesed, H-E-S-E-D, which means loving kindness. Oftentimes in the Bible translation I just read to you, it's translated kindness. But another translation would be help for the helpless. Help for those who cannot find any other help. That's hesed. That is friendship beyond the rules. And there are two aspects to hesed that we see here. One is blessing and the other is covenant. Just quickly, look at verse 8, blessing. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, uh, you know, women, go back to your home. Interesting, go back to your mother's house, not your father's house. This is a story about where women are the real heroes. Just go back to your mother's house. And then she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. Even this bitter woman still has a faith in the Lord and still has the capacity to bless people around her to say, May God bless you. And it turns out as you read this book, as I hope you will over the next week, you'll see time and time again people are blessing each other. Are they sneezing all over the place? You, you know, you see, Bo Boaz to the reapers, the Lord be with you. Reapers to Boaz, the Lord bless you. Naomi of Boaz, blessed be the man who took notice of you. Naomi of uh, uh, Boaz again, blessed be he by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living. Boaz of Ruth, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You know, I'm not going to read them all to you. It's over and over and over. They're blessing one another. What does it mean to bless someone? I love the legacy of Bruce Larson in this congregation, one of your former pastors. He taught you 
that how many attaboys it takes to overcome one you jerk, right? You know, how many? Ten. Ten attaboys to overcome one you jerk. Why is that? Because we know the problems in our lives. We know what's wrong with us. We don't need you to help us figure that out. What we need is someone who believes the good that's there. Not just the good in us, but the good in God with whom we are relating. That's what it means to bless someone, not just to give a kind of a pat on the back and say, you can do it, like we would say to everybody, and boosting your self-esteem. It's to entrust you to God, who can do it, who will give you help. So I say, bless you. I lift you up to the Lord. I pray for you. I bless you. I pronounce. I articulate blessings over your head. So that I know it will not be your circumstances that determine your future, but I know it will be the kindness of a living God. That's spiritual friendship, part one. Part two is, is covenant making. We see in verse 14, the beginning of covenant language. It turns out, you know, Orpah um, compels the logic of, of, of Naomi. She says, hey, I'm old. I'm not going to have another child. Even if I've had another child, it would take a generation for them to grow up and marry you. And you've got no hope with me. So go home. Go back to Moab. And they cry. And Orpah kisses her and says, you're right. And she goes. But Ruth says, she clings to her, the text says. Ruth clung to her, cleaved to her. This is the same word we read in Genesis 2, I think it's 24, where it says, but a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. A covenant kind of bond. And the beautiful poem that Ruth says is, is, is a covenant oath. She pledges herself to Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. And then she says, let God be the insurance policy. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, even death, if even death parts me from you. That's fascinating. She says, I know you're heading back to this God who's got you under judgment. But I'd better rather be with you and your God whom you think is judging you than to be without you and that God. I go with you in covenant relationship. A contract has two parties. And when one party defaults on the contract, the contract is gone. A covenant friends has three parties. You, your friend, and God. If blessing is lifting your partner up to God, covenanting with someone is acknowledging the presence of God in the midst of the relationship. I have hope for you. I have hope for us because I know there is one with us in this relationship. This is the kind of relationship that husbands and wives are to have. But it's also the kind of relationship that friends have. We see David and Jonathan making a covenant with one another. This is an interesting story. I mean, imagine you are heir to the throne. Jonathan is the son of the king, Saul, first king of Israel. And guess who's next? Everyone knows. It's the son. And yet one day there's this ruddy little shepherd boy, you know, the slingshot, who takes down a giant somehow by accident or whatever, and he's the, the next, uh, the crowd's favorite. Right? It's like a Michael Jackson of Israel. And, and everyone's singing songs to him. And, and this would arouse jealousy, rivalry. I mean, the rules of relationships say, take him out, keep him under your watch. And yet Jonathan comes to David and the text says, 1 Samuel 18, 
The soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And so Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan took off his robe and his armor and his sword, his bow and his belt, and gave them to Jonathan to David. This covenant gets renewed several times, three times in 1 Samuel. In chapter 20, we see he makes a covenant with the house of David. That's interesting. Not only with David, but everybody that comes from David. He's going to make a covenant with them as well, Jonathan. So faithful. That's friendship beyond, beyond the rules. The rules of friendship in our culture are so dangerous, really. Think about how our culture defines friend. What is a friend? A friend is someone I like. Wouldn't you say that's a common definition of friend? Well, how then would you be a friend to someone else? To befriend someone else, by that definition, would suggest that we have to make them like us. We have to become likable. We have to somehow change who we are in order to be a friend to them. So they'll like us. Or if that doesn't work, we have to somehow change them so that they'll want to like us, which leads to manipulation. Either way, the, the, the destruction of the relationship, the writing is on the wall. You can't have real friendship that way. A real friendship is built upon chesed. Helping the helpless, blessing, covenant making. Finally, the power of spiritual friendship. The need for spiritual friendship is really the need for God in our lives. The nature of spiritual friendship is really entrusting the relationship and our partner to God, believing, having hope for them, because we know who God is. The power of spiritual friendship is really what makes history move. It's not us. It's not how good a friend you and I are. Ultimately, all of our relationships have a tinge of idolatry to them. But there is one behind the scene moving friendship to its fulfillment. Ruth learns all that she knows about God through Naomi and perhaps her deceased husband. We catch Naomi coaching Ruth in verse 20 of chapter 2. I love this little insight. So we don't get a lot in this text. The narrator is very careful and spare. But in verse 20, Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, she whispers in her ear, listen, Blessed be he by the Lord. Blessed be Boaz by the Lord. Because the Lord's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Wow. Naomi and Ruth know a God whose kindness stretches from life through death. He is ever faithful. When God had made a covenant with his people on Mount Sinai, he gave them the Ten Commandments, gave the Second Commandment, in which he says, yeah, my judgment for two or three generations, but my chesed, my kindness for a thousand generations. God's kindness always swallows up judgment in love. I don't know if you know the story of Cyrano de Bergerac, or if you're like me, you probably know the story better in Roxanne, or, or in Seinfeld. It's all the same little sketch. It's, it's a probably a very profound sketch is why it's repeated in so many places in literature. And the, and, the, and the way it works is this. There's a man who loves a woman greatly, but he has a very big nose. Or he has some other disfiguring quality to him. And so he enlists somebody else to approach her, someone more attractive. And he whispers in that other person's ear the words that he is to say. And so, for example, in Seinfeld, 
Uh, we've got um, Kramer, who wants to court the, the librarian. And so behind the stacks, we've got Newman. And Newman is there, whispering the words that Kramer should say to her. They're very nearly poetic, beautiful words, and she's melting. This is really what the book of Ruth is like. We see how friends show covenant kindness to one another, but behind, behind, unseen, there is the great heart in the center of the universe. That great heart who speaks hesed and love and kindness into our lives. The very thing that we share with one another comes from him. The friendship of God is the friendship ultimately that we see in Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not easy love. It wasn't easy for God to love me, for God to love you. That's what the cross is all about. But it's the very thing that conquers, that brings victory, that brings relief from all of our anxieties, despairs, and situations. So it's the Hesed of God that bends the arc of history through spiritual friendship. People like you, people like me, God helping the helpless as we help the helpless. No clergy involved, no special miracles, uh, no great programs. It doesn't depend on increasing church attendance. It doesn't uh, depend on religious slogans or proclamations or, or uh, moral legislation. All that it requires is people who will engage in friendship, one with another, in the presence of God. Let's pray. We bow our heads before one who has come to be the friend of sinners. And we acknowledge before you, O God, that we are sinners. But we must also confess with great joy that you have called us your friends, that you have loved us with all that you are, that you have swept away anything, any judgment, that would preclude our eternal experience of your hesed, your kindness. We rejoice in that. We ask you to rub that truth deep into our souls, and we ask it to jump out. As we walk by people today, people we know, at Starbucks, at home, the office, people we don't know, people along the side of the street, people in distant places, Lord, make us a kind people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.